So, good morning and welcome to our class. Nice to see you all. One thing I've learned recently is that coffee is not very hydrating before teaching. Did you know that? Yes. Carolyn knew that. Yep. So I now drink water before I talk. I still have coffee though, can't, can't change that. Some things don't change. <laughs> we are in the letter of Paul to Philemon. And we will be for some time yet to come. Please turn there in your Bible. Eventually we'll get to reading it. Brief recap, because I know that attendance is in and out a little bit. We are now actually into the exposition and commentary of the letter. We are in the verses. We did several lectures on structure and uh, themes, context. So we've been setting up the book. Now we're actually in it. And so last week, we, I laid out what is going to be the basic structure that we're going to use for the exposition. You'll see it starts with structures and themes. So we go over where, what we taught back then. Then it goes to characters and setting. And after that, it goes to notes and application. Those are going to be the three major headings in every section that we do for this letter. And so I will go over each of the structures. We will go over the characters mentioned here, and then we will take notes and do some application, and that's going to be our basic pattern. So we introduced that we are in the salutary part of the chiasm. I recognize that we talked about chiasms uh, two months ago, something like that, at least a month and a half ago. So I left on your table a helpful little chiasm here. This is going back to what we did on week two, I think. So you can get a little reminder about what our chiasm looks like. We are in the salutations part. And if you look at what the chiasm is, the Higher ideas correspond to the lower ideas until it comes to the key axis in the middle. So we showed that in the very opening verses of Philemon, we are in the salutary or salutation part of the chiasm. We are in the sovereignty part of the covenantal structure. There is a five-point covenantal structure. We, uh, of course, open up with the sovereignty, identification, introduction, that idea. So we are there. And then we showed anticipation. A lot of the ideas that are brought up just in the first two verses, really, end up anticipating the content that comes later in the letter. So this is anticipatory structure. Uh, usually the first 10% or so of a letter will anticipate the content that comes later on. After that, we looked at some of the themes that come through anticipation. Prisoner, free man, brother and sister, father and son, mother and daughter, being a soldier in a time of war, and the family gathering of the church. We actually didn't get to those last two, and that's where we're picking up this morning. We introduced some of our characters. We showed that Philemon, Aphia, and Archippus are a family unit. Philemon being the father and husband, Aphia being the wife and mother, Archippus being the son, who is a young minister. And we learn that from Colossians 4. Paul is telling Archippus, tell Archippus to receive the ministry that has been given to him. So Archippus is a young minister. He could be the minister of this house church. And we know that in the time, uh, or Paul is writing to Philemon, who has a church in his house. You see that at the end of verse 2. And we also learn from the other letters that Philemon lives in Colossae. So he's already written a letter to Colossians before. Now he's writing a personal letter to Philemon, but his house church is in Colossae itself too. 
So we introduced our characters. We showed that Philemon is a wealthy man, obviously. Not only did he have a nice big enough house suitable for hosting church every single week, but he had a house full of uh, he had slaves in his house. He had hired workers in his home. He was very productive. He's called a fellow worker. So he's a very productive man. He's a wealthy man. And so that's why they're able to... He's, he's a man with a lot of influence. So he's got a lot of power in this situation. And Paul recognizes that. Although, if you've read this letter, you know that Paul, despite how powerful Philemon is, who's more powerful in this relationship? Paul the Apostle has every right to command Philemon to do what is right. He actually makes mention of it a couple times, which suits right in with our chiasm. But he says, I have the authority to tell you what to do and to tell you to do what is right. But he doesn't do that. I would rather appeal to you. And that's part of the persuasive genius of Paul, really. And we'll get into more of why he does it like that uh, as we go on. Uh, we talked about Onesimus. Onesimus has not been mentioned yet, but Paul is clearly setting the stage already. He won't even mention Onesimus until down in verse 8 and 9 and 10. That's when he gets into his, his actual request. Verse 10 is when he mentions his name. And by the time he does, we know that in the reading of the letter, the way that it would have worked, he sent Tychicus and Onesimus together. They came from Rome, they delivered letters in Ephesus, then they came and delivered Philippi as well, and they delivered a letter to Philemon in his house in Colossae. And here's Onesimus, the runaway slave who stole from him, and he's standing there in front of Philemon. What would you do if your runaway slave who stole from you, good for nothing, now is coming back with a letter? There's a lot of different things Philemon could do in that moment. And by Roman law, he had the right to execute Philemon, or uh, Onesimus. He could have had him killed. So Paul's sticking his neck out. He's reading this letter with the betrayer, essentially, right in front of him. And that's a tense moment. And so Onesimus is in a tricky spot. However, all the characters involved are believers. And when we are all family in Christ, that changes your dynamic. We don't treat each other a certain way when we are all believers in the same family, especially of the same household. Onesimus would have been part of their house church. Everyone in the household was part of the church, including the slaves, including Onesimus. They all knew each other. They were all in doing church together every single week. So what do you do with a runaway church member who probably didn't profess faith before? That's why Paul says, I became his father in my imprisonment. So even Onesimus was just going through the motions before. He's attending church because Philemon wants him to, but he, he was not regenerate. He was not a converted man. And that showed in his work. He was useless. Verse 11, formerly he was useless to you. And we're going to talk about the, the connection between being a believer and hard work when we get to that point. So that's where we were going. And then we ended off talking about the father-son theme because Timothy, why does Paul have to mention Timothy? Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. That's kind of strange because Timothy has nothing to do with this. Uh, and yet we know from anticipatory structure and through the persuasive genius of Paul, he's bringing up Timothy for a very exact purpose. And there's another purpose that I'll get to later on. But Timothy being brought up here reminds us of the father-son relationship that those two had. Paul 
is responsible for Timothy's conversion. From a human perspective, of course, it's God sovereignly working. But he calls Timothy my true child in the faith. He's like a child to him. They have a very close familial bond. And so the application we made to that is that for a lot of us, our ministry duty in life is not to go be preachers. It's not to go be missionaries in Africa. How about being a spiritual mother and father to sons and daughters of this church who don't have a spiritual mother or a spiritual father? We talked about parenthood, that the, the person who is supposed to be your spiritual mother and spiritual father, do you remember who that's supposed to be? Your earthly mother and father. You're supposed to receive the faith through your earthly parents. But that, that oftentimes that connection gets split or it doesn't transfer properly or the parents take a back seat and just, oh, the church can deal with that. Or uh, maybe my kid will, maybe not. Who? I nah, don't really care. Or we can go the hyper-Calvinist route. It's going to be all God anyway, so I don't need to, I'm just going to leave it all in God's hands. You can go that route too. So the, the transference of the faith, the bringing it to the next generation can have a lot of problems, connection problems. And so there can be, even in the church, a whole lot of sons and daughters who do not have spiritual parents. And for I think for a lot of people in the church who aren't involved in professional ministry, that is a very worthwhile ministry. Take somebody, mentor them, be their spiritual father, be their spiritual mother, so older women with younger women, older men with younger men. I was going to turn to Titus 2, but we ran out of time, which shows the older women teaching and mentoring the younger women. And it's the same thing with men. That's how it's supposed to be. We become spiritual parents to children who do not have that. And now, so where, we, where we're picking up then is Paul and Timothy's relationship after that is also one of mentor-mentee. Have you had a mentor in your life? Or have you been mentored by somebody else? This often correlates with if they are your spiritual father or your mother, but not necessarily. You can get a lot of mentorship from somebody who isn't all that close to you. For instance, have you learned lots from an online teacher or an online preacher or a podcast or a lecture series where you don't know the guy or gal who's teaching it, but you are tr you're benefiting tremendously from that. Even that's a form of mentor-mentee. It's not as personal, and I think we lose a lot by not having the personal, but you can still be mentored in a sense from afar, from these types of tools. We have great tools when it comes to the internet and having access to some of the best teachers that in past generations they had no access to, or at least the only way they got access. You go to the library and <laughs> cross your fingers that they have that guy's book or you have to have a lot of money and buy the book or get the guy to come in and spend a weekend in your town. There, it was a lot harder to get access to quality biblical teachers in past times. But the internet has made this so much easier. This is a tool. It's something that can be used for bad, of course, but we, if we take a tool that's there and we use it for its purpose, we should, this is something that we should be excited about and using to the best of our abilities. The fact that we have access in almost every part of the globe with these types of messages, with, with gospel messages, that's a really good thing. So they have a mentor-mentee relationship. This was a long-term, discipling, close ministerial relationship. Uh, we talked about Thessalonians. Do you remember how long... Prior to Philemon, was Thessalonians written? We talked about this a little bit. 
Because already back in Thessalonians, Paul tells them, I'm sending Timothy to you. They want Paul to come and teach them about the day of the Lord. Well, Paul's busy, and so he's going to go send junior Timothy to them. That was in about 49 AD. How old would Timothy about have been at that time? Mid-20s at the latest. He's possibly only in his early 20s at this point. He is a young man. Now, somebody came up to me last week afterwards, and we talked about the age thing, and they made a really good point. A 20-year-old in generations past is not always like your 20-year-old today. And I heard this really depressing quote once, 30 is the new 18. So the maturity level of an 18-year-old in generations past is like your 30-year-old today. <laughs> it's pretty sad. <laughs> but, um, yeah, back in the days of the World Wars, we have 18-year-olds storming beaches, and today we get triggered by microaggressions. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> This close relationship. So Timothy would have been in his young 20s, and he's being sent off to do Paul's bidding over in Thessalonica. And they probably received Timothy, not only because Paul said, receive him, but a a young 20-year-old who was personally trained by Paul would carry a lot more authority and weight than your common 22-year-old today who just got out of liberal arts in some college. Right? So he did carry some weight to him. They would have respected Timothy, and if they didn't, they would have heard from Paul. So he was the young minister who Paul looked out for, and that's the relationship that's supposed to happen between ministry workers, between older and younger, more experienced, less experienced, been in the ministry for decades, just got out of school. These are close ministerial relationships that are supposed to be occurring. Uh, The role that is taken here is that the older, the more experienced, the one who has been counseling broken marriages for decades, helping people uh, when they lose their jobs, the the real world experience with this is supposed to take on the younger and less experienced and provide for them. Provide for them opportunity, provide for them counseling and mentorship, provide for them how to advance in the ministry, how to do the job effectively. A lot of different ways. The older teaches and provides for the younger. And so what does the younger then do? So the younger doesn't have that much to offer to the older in most circumstances. The job of the younger in that case is to honor and obey the older. So this is Paul and Timothy again. Does Timothy get a choice in going to Thessalonica? Maybe. I mean, certainly Paul would consult him. But if Paul says, hey, I'd like you to go to Thessalonica and deal with this one, it's on Timothy to, I'll do so. Just give me the tools to be able to do this. Tell me what I need to say, and I'll do it. I will go, and I'll tell them whatever whatever you'd like. Like, This is the type of trusting relationship that's supposed to develop between ministry workers. This is not different than some other types of relationships where there are certain roles. We have roles between people, even in the church. We have roles in the genders, even. We're going to talk about... Uh, marriage and women in marriage in a bit, but even in the marriage relationship, Paul is not confused about gender theory or anything like that when he says in Ephesians 5 for the husband to love his wife and the wife to respect her husband. Those are not the same words, and yet it's speaking the language of, of 
men as their own selves and women as their own selves. Women speaking in the language of love. And so a man has to get past the whole, I just, I want to be respected. He's got to speak the language of his wife, loving her. And the wife doing likewise. Your husband's language is respect. He wants that to be the way that you relate to him primarily. Not your natural language of love, but the language of respect. This is how the scriptures picture the roles and relationship between husband and wife. And so even though it's set there between masculine and feminine, the role of providing for, leading, uh, teaching, all of that, and then the other side being the one who follows, uh, submits, honors, those types of pictures can go outside just the male-female relationship itself. It can also come in ministerial relationships where the older is supposed to be providing for, teaching and leading the younger, and the younger is supposed to be honoring and respecting and obeying the older. That's how it's supposed to work in the church. And that was the relationship between Paul and Timothy. Uh, the fact that it was a long-term relationship, again, Thessalonica was some 13 years earlier. Here we are in Philemon. Timothy's still with them. How often does that happen? Where a young, accomplished guy like Timothy, he's got the best teacher that he could possibly get. 13 years later, he's still with Paul. Paul's in jail in Rome. Timothy's a free man. He doesn't have to be there. But in a way, he does. He's obligated to Paul. He, he wants to serve Paul. He knows he owes Paul. He's a child of Paul's, spiritually speaking. And so in a way, he doesn't want to leave. I think all of us would have a very hard time leaving the person who gave all these things to us, provided for us in all these ways, to leave them in their moment when they're in prison, when they're at a low point. Timothy wants to stay. So it's a long-term relationship that they have. All right, moving on from that. Any questions or comments about mentor-mentee relationships, ministry relationships, anything to say about that? Okay. Finally, he's going to mention Aphia in verse 2. Aphia, our sister. Now, Paul has no direct reason to need to mention Aphia. In that day, women were often excluded from lists. They were excluded from managing responsibilities. They were excluded from any kind of leadership. Women were excluded from equal status with men in just about every, uh, in, in most ways in the Roman Empire. Even when you get some of the accounts of the miracles of Christ and it talks about how many people are present, it often just mentions the men. And sometimes it'll mention, and then the women, besides the women and children. So 5,000 were fed besides women and children. So they were fed too. So you add them in and you're not at 5,000. You're at like 11, 12, 13,000 being fed in one sitting by Christ's miracle. It's actually more than what is written there. But they're just mentioning the men. And that was a common thing in the day. The mention of Aphia here reminds us that in Christianity, women do not have the same status that, all of, that they would with their Roman counterparts. In a lot of other environments, women did not have status that was on the same of men. But when it comes to the New Testament, it would never have been considered a feminist document. However, it put equality before God between man and, before, and, and woman. Now, that was already true in the Old Testament. Men and women were equal before God in the Old Testament. 
But this wasn't always true, and often wasn't true, when it goes to societies that didn't use the Bible, that weren't Jewish or Christian. Uh, women were less than. And here, the fact that Afia is going to get a nice special mention here, she's just as part of the church as Philemon. She's just as part of the church as Archippus. And so Paul's mentioning the whole family here, as, and this is the whole church that he's mentioning. He eventually names everybody else as well. But in the family of Christ, there is a quality in the status between man and woman. Now we talked about roles. That doesn't mean the role is the exact same. In God's sovereignty, he has ordained certain roles for each that men can't do what women do. Women can't do what men do. Even if, oh, I have the skills to be able to do this. It doesn't matter. God sets the boundaries. God sets the rules. But when we come to Christ, Paul says there's no Greek or Jew. There's no slave or free. There's no man or woman. There is complete equality before the table of Christ. And that's how it's going to be in glory. People of every type of tribe, nation, tongue. It's, it's awkward now saying every kind of gender because there's only two, but people will take that another way. <laughs> uh, any comments on the status of women in Christianity when it comes to the New Testament? This would have been a pretty freeing thing if you were a woman in the first century. We move on to the next theme, which is the soldier theme. Where are we getting soldier from? There's two spots in this letter that we get this soldier warfare theme. Do you know what they are? Verse 2. Verse 2 is the obvious one. Archippus, our fellow soldier. Paul doesn't have to call him a soldier, but he chooses to. And there's one more part in this letter that's going to bring up the, the, the war theme. This one was tough, is a little trickier to see. It has to do with the translation of a Greek word that doesn't come across in the English. Copying off on her. And, and what did she say? Is it verse 9 prisoner? It is not verse no. 9 prisoner. I've never copied someone. <laughs> it is not verse 20. <laughs> yes, Dill. Verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ. That, that word is oftentimes used oh, for that. prisoners of war. There it is. Yeah. Different prisoner, different That's what, prisoner. Got it. Close. Really close. <laughs> 23 says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. Now, in the English, that makes it sound like he's just saying the same thing as verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. But it's not the same word. The word that he uses there, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner of war, is the direct literal translation of that term there. He's a prisoner of war. We are in a time of war. Worship is a form of warfare. Now, Paul talks this way a lot. Not only does he say directly here, Archippus, our fellow soldier, but you remember in Ephesians, both chapter 2 and chapter 6, he's going to bring up this soldier theme again, particularly chapter 6. What does he tell us that we need and to, as we walk around? What do we need in Ephesians 6? Armor. We need armor. Okay. We need armor. and different, There's different parts of this armor, but what's in his hand? Sword. A sword. He needs a sword. Now, what does the sword represent? Word. The word of God, of course. But... Paul is not at all 
holding back from or scared of or embarrassed of this idea that we are in a war. And we quite actually are. There's other parts of the New Testament that talk about Christ leading us like captives out of Satan. We, are, we're, we're, we were captives of Satan. He leads us out. Again, that's captives. You were captured by an enemy warlord or, or army, whatever it is. We are in an actual battle that began way back in the garden, way back in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve and Satan as the serpent comes. And that's when our war starts. That was the first battle. And humanity lost the first battle. And humanity has lost a lot of battles since then. And so, we need a conqueror. We needed somebody who was strong enough to go into the strong man's house and plunder his goods and take from him and have restore us to our status of conquerors over our enemy. Because in a lot of ways, our enemy is conquered over us. Now, there's something really interesting that I've learned. The Eastern Orthodox Church. You know much about the Eastern Orthodox Church? Strange. Uh, we don't know much about that. We know a lot more about Roman Catholicism than we do about Eastern Orthodox. But they have a very interesting thing that they do. They take Eucharistic bread, uh, the bread of, of communion, similarly uh, to everybody else, and in their bread that they make, they put a certain stamp, a certain image, a stamp onto the bread. Like when you go to McDonald's and you get an English muffin and it's got the golden arches on it, if you look at it, and hopefully it's not deformed, but you can have that at McDonald's. It's similar with the Eastern Orthodox Church. See, what they do, they put this stamp on their bread before they bake it. It goes like this. Now, that looks like I-C-X-C Nika. Is there any Greek scholar here who can translate for me what this is? Okay. It's a hard, it's a hard one. And then the other thing, that's a cross. And then it'll be in a circle. And then the bread will be around it. That's what they stamp onto their Eucharistic bread. Now, this is short form for Jesus. The IC is Jesus. The XC is Christ. Jesus, Christ, and then this is actually one word, Nika, means conquers. Jesus, Christ, conquers, or conqueror. Nika, he's a conqueror. That's what they understand. Every single time they are taking communion bread, they are taking in Jesus Christ, the conqueror. Now, unfortunately, they have a transubstantiation view of the Eucharist, which is similar to the Catholic view. Uh, but no matter what they think is going on there, that it's literally turning into the body and, and blood of Christ, this idea that whenever they are proclaiming their union with Christ through communion, they are proclaiming Christ's conquering nature. The fact that he is our conqueror. Uh, it's stamped right on there. Uh, in Romans 8, we have this beautiful verse that in Christ we are more than conquerors. That idea is all over Scripture. In, the, in Revelation, I go here quite frequently, but the letters to the seven churches. Again, what does 
what does the author say to the seven churches in every single one of these letters if they do what he has written down? If they do what Christ says, they will be conquerors and given the crown of life. They'll be given the right to be conquerors and will receive the crown of life. This idea is all over the New Testament. And it's because they understood the Old Testament God as a conqueror. Remember when the commander of the armies of the Lord met with Joshua? And Joshua, he sees this angelic figure who identifies himself as the commander of the armies of the Lord. Now, that is a Christophany. Uh, we believe that that angel is the pre-incarnate Christ. And that angel of the Lord, that commander of God's armies, continued to go before them. Just like in Revelation. To them who do as I say, to them who obey the law, I am going to go before you and I'm going to confuse your enemies when they're standing around and you're scared of them. I'm going to confuse them and make them turn on each other. Or I'm just going to send the angel of death in there and they're just going to take them all out. Or I'm going to send them running back to their home with their tail between their legs. All these types of things. You see, God is always conquering. He doesn't sit back. He doesn't retreat. He doesn't, oh, however it goes, however the chips fall. He's on a mission to conquer his enemies and reward his friends. We don't always like those that way of describing it, because we always hear so much about just love and mutual fellowship, which, which are great things, but we can't just uplift that and get rid of the fact that he, God is a conqueror. He's coming to destroy his enemies. And there's a part of that which we really don't want to think too much about, because we were enemies. He came to destroy us, and he did destroy your sin nature, the fact that you were a captive of the strong man, Satan, and the stronger man came, and he had to conquer the strong man to, to get you out, because the stronger man, Christ, had to come and take you out of Satan's house. He had to conquer you. He has to conquer your family. He has to conquer your children. He has to conquer your parents. He's in the conquering business. Jesus Christ, Nika. And so, we are soldiers in this war. Just like Archippus, we are soldiers. Now, what are we to be soldiers for? Well, first of all, I think we are to be soldiers for the purity of worship. I get that right from the beginning of the Ten Commandments. The second commandment, that thou shalt have no other, no, other, uh, no other gods, and then you shall make no graven image. Don't make images of the Lord. Now, when you see that, you just think, okay, so I'm not going to go make a golden calf. I'm not going to go make a statue of Jesus Christ and start bowing to it. Okay, that, that is a fair application of the commandment. But even though the commandment is saying, don't, have, don't, don't worship me through images. Don't worship me through these other types of mediums. What he is saying in the positive sense is, worship me the way I want to be worshipped. I don't want to be worshipped in all these other paganistic ways. I want you to worship the way I tell you to worship. Now, a lot of times in Israel's history, especially once you get to Jesus' day with the Pharisees, they can take that principle, I want to be worshipped the way I want to be worshipped, and then they just heap on all of these extra-biblical laws, and as though they are getting close to God just by 
doing certain stuff. That that is how we are saved. I just got to do these things. I got to do my five prayers. I got to present my alms at the right time. I got I to donate to this charity. And that, so I just got to do a bunch of stuff. And that's not exactly it, because eventually God is saying, I'm sick of your sacrifices. Where's your mercy? Where's your justice? Stop sacrificing to me when you are ripping off the orphans and the widows. What are you doing? Get your act together. And so, the second commandment can be taken in a hyper-literalistic and legalistic fashion. But just because people are going to abuse the principle doesn't mean we throw away the principle. God wants to be worshipped the way he says he wants to be worshipped. And that's why we don't do certain things. That's why we don't put images around. That's why we teach God's word and not our own moralistic opinions. That's why we take the Lord's Supper and we do baptisms. God said this is what he wants. This is what he wants in worship. So that's what we do. Uh... At some, if you ever get bored or you want to see another application of this, go to Deuteronomy 12 one day. Don't, don't do it now. But in Deuteronomy 12, you get this really cool account where God is saying, in the land which I am going to give to you, I will show you where I want the altar. You, I don't want you to set up your altar in, in all these different places. In the, in the land, I will show you. And when I show you, this is how I want my altar. The, all of Deuteronomy 12, like six different times, God says, I will show you. When I show you where I want my altar, which ends up being Jerusalem, and it's a prefiguration of the temple of Jerusalem. But again, we are to be soldiers for the purity of worship. Not anything goes. It is highly inappropriate in a church setting to sing your national anthem. If it's Sunday morning and you are in worship, I don't care if it's the 4th of July, you're not singing the Star Spangled Banner. That is not what we are to do when we gather for worship. We don't sing the Canadian anthem when it comes to our time of worship. We don't light off fireworks. We don't put on a nice rock show with the lights going everywhere and we're jumping up. This isn't a rock concert. We're worshiping a holy God. Now, it doesn't mean we have to be static and not make any moves and show no emotion and, and frozen faith. That doesn't mean we have to do that either. Um, but again, let's keep in mind, just because people abuse it doesn't mean that we throw away the principle. So we are to worship in sincerity, and sometimes our sincere reaction to the Lord will be overwhelmed, and you begin weeping, even in a worship service. That's not forbidden. God actually treasures the tears of his people, those who are downtrodden, those who are suffering, those who are going through a time. And they come into his presence, and we are going through the, the, the covenantal structure. We're renewing the covenant symbolically with God, and we get overwhelmed because our, we, we remember again that our sins are forgiven. That's quite a precious thing in the sight of God. But we are not... What we are not to do is bring in our own devices and worship whichever way we choose to. This isn't, first and foremost, a political event. This isn't a social event. This is a worship event. And so, Christians can go be loyal citizens of their nation any other time. I'm all about patriotism. I'm all for standing up for your country and its freedoms, and calling politicians to account to serve God, to fear God. I am all for social action. I was involved in social action just yesterday. We went to 1,100 homes and we passed out pamphlets about the, the new laws coming in with medical assistance and dying. Did you know, excuse me, starting in March 2023, mental health 
will be a legitimate reason to, have, to euthanize yourself. Starting in March 23, our government has approved that if you are depressed, you are anxious, you are mentally overwhelmed, that that is a legitimate reason to be euthanized. And so we passed out pamphlets yesterday, me and a group of, a, group of a dozen or two dozen. Came across Josh Palmer while we were doing it. It's pretty fun. But, uh, so I'm all for this. But when you are in worship, you are first and foremost, you are a citizen of God's kingdom. Not a citizen of your nation first. Now you are a citizen of your nation. But you are first God's property. Not Canada's property. Not America's property or Britain's property. You're the king's property. You're the capital K king's property. Jesus Christ. He is the conqueror. He's conquered you. So we are to be soldiers for the purity of worship. What are our weapons? Our weapon is the word of God. Remember Ephesians 6. You got the sword. And that sword is the word of God. And it's double-edged because it is both cutting you and it is healing you. God does both of those things with his sword, with his word. And so when Christ says this really interesting thing, you remember the, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacekeepers. But then later on, he says, peace I have not come to bring, but a sword. I've come to bring division. I've come to bring a sword, not peace. How do we reconcile that? Is he just blatantly contradicting himself? I'm actually going to ask right now, how do you resolve those two things? How do we resolve, blessed are the peacemakers, and he's come to bring us peace, but at the same time, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Can you reconcile that for us? really good. So there is a sense in which we have peace. We have peace with God when he makes us his children. We are not at war anymore with God. We're not his enemies anymore. We're actually unified with him. There's peace there now. Blessed are those who have this kind of peace and who bring this peace to others. Blessed are they. But when you come across those who will not receive Christ's peace, they remain Christ's enemies. And we are first and foremost, as Tanya said, we belong to the Lord first. And so there will be times in our families, in our homes, in our societies, where we will be marked out as crazy. Oh, you're just the crazy Christian religious person. Oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. You're just a usurper. You're a what? A, all these types of things they can say about Christians. And our first allegiance is to Christ. And that's when he says, unless you... Well, the, the literal translation is hate. Father, mother, wife, child, you cannot be my disciple. Um, there's a lot we could say about that. He's not literally saying start hating them. But um, we are to consider them as second, third, fourth to our allegiance to Christ. Good answer. 
Our weapon is the Word of God. It's Scripture. And our other weapon is the songs of God. And this bears a very long discussion that we can't get into. I've talked about the Psalms before. But the songs of God are the Psalms in Scripture. We have 150 Psalms, and those were written to music. They were written to be sung. We read them. We have a very wooden understanding of the Psalms because we just read them. Do you find it's a little bit different when you sing something versus when you just say it? As though there's a power almost in the singing. When you just say it, it's like, oh, that's kind of empty now. Or it's not as full anymore. There's, somebody has once said that music is the language of the soul. I thought a lot about that. It's very interesting. Um, I'm not sure that's a perfect statement. But we connect on a deep level with music, with art. And when we're singing to God, for some people, that is the most significant part of the worship service. That is, they're pouring out their praise to God more through song than through the recitation of a confession. For me, I really like when we answer uh, questions of catechism together. Some churches do this. Uh, Question 109 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, What is, here's the question, church, what is the answer? And then the church says it out loud together and they have the answer. I really appreciate that kind of stuff. And that's when I feel very worshipful. Other people, the music is when they connect most with the Lord. It's a deep part of our, and an important part of our worship service. They are the songs of God. And then as Colossians 3.16 teaches, we are to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So hymns, your classic songs of the faith that are not exactly, they're not, fr- they're not psalms, but they are classic song- songs of the faith, your amazing grace, uh, how great thou art. These are historically acclaimed hymns of the faith. They have passed the test of time. And then your spiritual songs, which is not speaking in tongues, sorry, charismatics. Uh, spiritual songs are any, any of us could write a spiritual song. This is any one of us who starts songwriting. And it hasn't got to the title of hymn yet. This isn't a historically acclaimed, past the test of time song. But it's just a spiritual song. We'll see. It could be a hymn one day. But this is just us as individuals writing music. So the Gettys write spiritual songs. And I think some of the Gettys are going to end up with classic hymns. Some of, these, some of the things that they have written. And this is what we're supposed to sing. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Those are part of our weapons in this fight. And then finally, the person of God. And the person of God as part of this war is the Holy Spirit and the sacraments. We have this idea, and even in my own conversion story, if you want to call it that, was when I asked Jesus to come into my heart. I prayed the prayer. I asked Jesus to come into my heart. And I believe the Lord heard that prayer and saved me in that moment. I do. But let me ask you, where is Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory? Where is he? He's at the right hand of the Father. He's not in my heart. Okay? Jesus Christ is not in your heart. Jesus Christ is up in heaven with the Father. He is the man who is able to go into heaven as the perfect sacrifice. That was his mission, to go and be the sacrifice before the Father. And now he has assumed his spot. That's why he ascended. He ascended already. He's not, he's not sitting in this chair or in your car when you're driving and talking to Jesus. You're not talking to Jesus. Not in that sense. Now, when we pray, we are 
we are communicating with God. But Christ is not invisibly sitting right beside me. He's in heaven. So who is with us? The Holy Spirit is with us. The Holy Spirit is in your heart if you are a believer. He's the one who's bringing you remembrance of Christ. You can't even remember Christ without the Holy Spirit. He's the one who is in you, who convicts your conscience, who leads you into holiness, your sanctification. It's the Holy Spirit who's with you. And so, we are to honor the person of God, the Holy Spirit who is in us. And the Holy Spirit is with us as we perform the sacraments. We talked about how the sacraments are part of our symbolic covenant renewal with God. We're always renewing this covenant with God. Just like the Old Testament, they're always renewing this covenant. That's what we do with the sacraments. They are symbols of renewal. And so we're not literally eating the body and blood of Christ, but in the Holy Spirit, He is making our actions acceptable to God. This is why you can eat the bread, you can drink the cup, and it can be offensive to God. If you are doing so in an unworthy manner, it is offensive to Him, and you are eating and drinking judgment on yourself. But if the Holy Spirit is there, the Holy Spirit's the one who makes it pleasing to the Father, who presents it to the Father and makes it acceptable. So we are in a war. We are in an actual war. And these are our weapons. These are how we are soldiers. And I'm going to try to get to the end of these points here in the minute I have. Talk about the nature of the church for a minute. Actually, this might bleed into next week because this is an important thing. There's a modern movement. Uh, it's not the first time it's happened about house churches. You know, the New Testament always had house churches. We need to get away from our big buildings and, and go back into the homes. Have small house churches dotted around the city. That's what we need. Is that what we need? Is that actually a, a legitimate argument? This is how it was in the first century. We need to go back to that and just have house churches. Sell all your buildings and have house churches. How does that sound to you? It's really nice, but it's got to be a catch. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, what I want to get at is we are bound, we are bound to the nature of the church even in the first century. We are a corporate family of God, worshiping God and serving and loving one another. Yeah, that was the nature of the first century church. We are bound to the nature of, the, of that church. But we are not bound to their specific cultural model of church. So, let's say that they, uh, for whatever reason, they had their altar right up at the front. They would meet in their living room and they'd have a big altar in the middle with a cross on it. That's kind of a nice picture. We're centered around Christ. Because they had their furniture aligned that way, do we need all of our furniture aligned that way today? Of course, when you put it like that, that's absurd. Just because they did certain things in their cultural practice does not mean that the 21st century church is supposed to copy it. We're not. We're not to necessarily copy their model of church, which was house churches. They did not have permission to have church buildings. But if you could take one of those first century Christians and show them all of the churches that dot our landscape today, how we can come freely and worship and sing and adore and do this covenant renewal every week, I bet they would be so grateful and pour out their praise to God for that, that everything that they went through in the first century was worth it. Because look how the church has grown since then. We are not bound to these house church models. Um, we don't go backwards. 
And maybe we'll pick up on that starting next week. Any final comment? 